it is uh, so exciting to be doing part two. Um, Ian covered, I just wanted to quickly get out the tough questions on, uh, on this. Ian uh, covered... Um, how can a loving God send people to hell? Last week, I got that right, eh? I was here. And uh, today, I'm gonna cover at the top, some of you would know the tough questions, flies that have gone out, how can there be only one way to God? And I think this will probably link up into some of the other questions that have gone out. One of them would be right at the bottom uh, of the fly that some of you may have seen, I'm happy with my own religion. And uh, another would be Christianity is a crutch. It's sort of something that people who are in need have to hold on to, but not if you're secure, not if you've got everything going well in life. So. The key headline I'm covering is how can there be only one way to God, but I think the others will really be covered in that. So um, if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to head across to John 14. We're going to do John 14 and John 18. It is going to be up there, but if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to go to John 14, verse 6, 1 passage. And uh, you can just hold it on that, and we're going to look at a few others. But we live in a world where it's great to be exploring and to tell people that. It's amazing to say, hey, I'm just exploring this. I'm just checking out this. But if you suddenly cross the line and say, hey, I found something, especially when it comes to faith, now that's not a good thing. It's very strange. It's great to say, I'm exploring and I'm checking out all the different options. But for you to step across the line and say, I found the truth, I found what's right, then it's a problem. It's a very strange system that we live in. And so today we're gonna be looking at whether there can be only one way to God. And I trust that as you seek God with all your heart, you will find. I trust that if you're here and you've known God for a long time, this will give you some of the tools, some of the confidence, in the faith in which we have. I love the Chronicles of Narnia, and some of you may have read the stories. I got some very exciting news that I found this morning, and that is that Chronicles of Narnia, the franchise, has been taken over by Netflix, and we will actually see those movies. I hope they'll stick to the books, but uh, I, I'm very excited because I love it. Now, the last book, The Final Battle, or The Last Battle, the remaining faithful in the group are near the stable. It's sort of a standoff near the stable, and King Tyrion says, it's seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said Lord Diggory. Its inside is bigger than its outside. You can imagine looking in at this tiny little stable, but somehow as you walk through the doors, the inside is bigger than the outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy. Some of you may know little Lucy and she obviously grows older. In our world too, talking about reality, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It was the first time she had spoken and from the thrill in her voice, King Tyrion now knew why. She was drinking everything in even more deeply than the others. She had been too happy to speak. It's this amazing picture of her going, but actually there was the stable once that may have looked small and tiny, kind of pathetic, kind of narrow, what good could come out of this tiny stable on earth, but actually within it, was the king that would actually, as you walk through those stable doors, give you freedom and give you life that you could never imagine from the outside. And that's a little bit about what we're gonna look at today. She was talking about Jesus coming to earth, the God of the universe stepping into our world. And I trust today that even if you've thought of Christianity to be small, to be narrow, to be tiny, that as you journey today, you'll find it bigger, wider, and more freeing than anything you've ever imagined. So I'd like to read two passages from the Bible. The first one, Jesus' words, uh, John 14, verse 6, if you're there, and then we'll jump across to more of John's biography. So this is what Jesus said. Uh, he, he was asked um, about the way and those sorts of things. Jesus told him, personally speaking, to, I am the way, 
I am the truth and I'm the life. He didn't say I'm a way, didn't say I'm a truth, didn't say I'm a type of life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he carries on life, and actually the reason for his crucifixion was because of blasphemy. In the end, that's why it was, calling himself God when he wasn't, so the Jewish people said. If you jump across now to John 18, moments before he's killed, Pilate um, has an interesting conversation. And Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea. So it was obviously, there were Jews in the place, but Rome had control. He wasn't someone who was liked very much. And he now has this conversation because he's trying to work out why is it that Jesus, why do they want to kill him? He hasn't actually done anything wrong as far as I can see from a Roman perspective. Why are people trying to take out this Jesus? So then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? because the Jews were saying he calls himself the king of the Jews. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, famous phrase, what is truth? What is truth? I.e., Jesus, you may say you have the truth, but someone else may say they have the truth. I may have a different truth. What really is it anyway, and does it matter? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And then he hands over and he says, do with them what you want. This interaction has so many interesting elements, both the first and the last. First, Jesus himself sharing who he is. So the person himself saying, this is what I am. And it's for us to look in and go, well, is that true or isn't it? There's someone else exploring and questioning who is this man? Someone from the outside going, who actually is this man? And then his response at the end. So I hope today we'll be leaning in with open hearts and minds to see what God might say. And I would love to tackle this with, uh, sorry, I didn't click over for you guys. I'd love to tackle this with the four legs of a chair is there only one way to God. And if I would have hopefully done something well in terms of in your minds at the end of the few minutes we have together, if you, if you feel that there's four elements, four legs now, that you can easily sit on as a Christ follower, someone exploring faith, and go, I can rest on these, and this chair works. This chair that I'm sitting on, what I'm placing trust in so that I won't fall or wobble, it actually works. So first leg of the chair. First leg of the chair that I want to look at. Not all religions want to get to God. And this may be interesting because the question we're looking at today is, is there only one way to God? Well, what we actually need to look at before that is, but how many actually even say that they want to get to God? How many even point there in the first place? And you'll be interested to know that actually not many at all, in fact, you'll struggle to find a faith that actually points towards God. You'll struggle. So there are a few, but this is what's interesting, that have similar elements to the Christian faith. But for example, Buddhism, the main goal in following Buddha is actually to lose your personal identity and then in the long run be absorbed into this wonderful state of nirvana. But you're, you're absent really from the body, you're absent from thought, and you definitely aren't going towards a God at all. That would be the purpose of Buddhism and the Eastern faiths to a large extent. Hinduism, as well as even greater amount of Eastern religions, have no objective of a personal relationship at all, and in fact, their direction is personal annihilation. Hinduism, that would be the, the ultimate end of direction of your life, personal annihilation. It's not getting towards a God at all, that's not the faith at all. Islam is about paradise. 
So Islamic faith is actually about getting to a state of paradise. And in paradise, it's great for the men, horrific for the women. So um, for in, in Islam, that is the case. So you get to a place, there's flowing um, wine, there's crystal clear water, and then there's many women for the men to enjoy. It's in the Quran. And so it's paradise, but you don't actually meet Allah. You don't spend time with Allah. There's no actual relationship there. It doesn't head towards God. And this is very interesting for us to look at. Christianity differs, first leg. It's God inviting us into a personal relationship with himself. So now, but also for eternity, when we die, what Christian faith would say is that you actually get God. More than the celebration, more than the wine that flows, more than anything else, you get God. You get a personal relationship with God. And that's the first leg that the Christian faith is looking at. So if you're here and you're exploring, and um, it's just important to know that actually most faiths don't even direct you to God at all, and that's not the purpose. So first leg. Second leg of the chair. Faith assumptions, the minute you make an assumption about faith, something not based on fact or a faith thing from deep within you, it is exclusive. What am I saying there? Well, often the accusation thrown at Christ followers is how can you claim that you have a monopoly on truth? How can you claim that your truth and what you believe is better than ours? How can you claim exclusivity when it comes to God and the direction? And there's an illustration that's been used many many, many times, an Eastern Indian illustration, and I'll look at the quick explanation by a man called Greg Kukul. So the parable of the elephant and the blind man. Does anyone know that parable? Does anyone know the parable of the elephant and the blind man? You guys are missing out on life. You aren't really, because now we can tear it apart. But uh, it's a well-known story that resonates in the culture that we live in, in the society in which we live in, where diversity is valued and where multiple perspectives are promoted. So it's a hugely valued story, and it's used as a real uplifting point in the um, in, in when it comes to different faiths and what people think of those. So it originated in India, and it's been used in many different religious um, beliefs, particularly Buddhism. Buddhism, Hinduism, Sufi context. But the most common version comes from a lady who wrote a children's book, which is quite terrifying, a lady called Lillian Quigley, um, about six blind men who visit the Raja's palace, the Raja's palace, and encounter an elephant. Is that how you said? Raja, Raja, King Raja. <laughs> you might know better than me. <laughs> So um, they encounter this elephant. These blind men go to this palace and they come across this elephant. And now what happens is, is they are all trying to work out what the elephant looks like. So the first blind man puts out his hand and he happens to touch the side of the elephant. And so he says, how smooth is an elephant? It's like this huge wall. It's an amazing, long, flat thing. The next blind man uh, puts out his hand and he happens to touch the trunk of the elephant. So he just happens to be at a different part. And he says the elephant is round. It's just like a snake. It's exactly like a snake. That is what an elephant is. The third blind man puts out his hand and he happens to touch the tusk. So he grabs hold of the tusk. And he says, how sharp. An elephant is just like a spear that I've used before. That's what an elephant is like. It is just like a spear. The fourth blind man puts out his hand and uh, he touches the leg of the elephant. So he happens to, maybe he was short or he was on his knees. We're not sure. But uh, he, he reached down and he says, um, over, um, when he touches the leg and he runs his hand up and down, he says the elephant actually is more like a tree. This elephant is a tree. It's quite sturdy. It's strong. It's fairly, fairly straight up and down. This must be a strong tree. The fifth one reaches out his hand and he touches the ear of the elephant and he says the elephant is just like a fan. 
This could keep you cool and an elephant is just like a fan and he's enjoying it and he's flopping it. Elephant obviously turns around and takes him out. That's how the story goes. It's a children's story. Six blind men put out his hand and he touches the tail of the elephant and he says, geez, an elephant is just like a piece of rope. So thin, so small, easy to turn around. And then the elephant's really getting bleak. But uh, he says an elephant is just like a rope. And an argument ensues and each blind man is now getting angry with the other. No, he's like a wall. No, he's like a tree. They're getting frustrated with each other. The story uh, closes off with the, the king hearing all the commotion. And he looks down and he sees these blind men grappling around this very, very calm elephant. And he calls down from the, bal- the balcony and he says, the elephant is a big animal. Each of you only touched one part, but you must put all the parts together to find out what the elephant is really like. Enlightened by the king's wisdom, the blind men reached agreement. Each one of us only knows part. To find out the whole truth, we must put all the parts together. And this story is used many times against the Christian faith to say, you see, you're like one of the blind men. And it's great that you found the ear, or it's great that you found the side, but actually everyone has a little part of reality. And so it sounds really humble and it, and it sounds um, uh, v- very sort of um, calming until you realize that the only way someone could tell that story is if they believed they saw the whole elephant. And so someone who stands and makes that claim actually in themselves is a very arrogant thing to stay because you're actually saying, listen, as a Christian, you only see the elephant tail. And as another faith, you see this, but I see the whole picture. And I know the whole truth, but you guys don't. And so that's one of the attacks that comes across the Christian faith. And so many would say, how can you as Christians claim to know the truth? But I'm different. I think everyone has part of the truth. And there's hypocrisy in that claim. And I think increasingly in first world societies in which we live, people are starting to see through this hypocrisy. Both Christian and non-Christian are starting to see the hypocrisy in those sorts of statements. But we celebrate diversity, we celebrate tolerance, we pretend to be humble. But in all of that, we're actually making our own truth claims. And truth by its very nature is exclusive. And so actually, every truth claim that you make will be exclusive. Every claim that you make when it relates to truth and what you believe is exclusive regardless of the faith you're in. So that's the next one. You can be happy that the Christian faith is claiming exclusivity, but so is any other standpoint. That would be the same as someone who says they don't believe in God, believe in something, um, something else or evolutionary belief. That also is a truth claim. It's not scientific. It's a truth claim in itself, and that by nature is exclusive. Great. Third one. Third leg of the chair. It's getting interesting. Is truth relative? I spoke a bit on this, but what it's really getting across is what's true to give more is okay, can be a different truth to mine, and my truth can be a different truth to chase. And that's okay. Everyone can have their own truth, and in society, that's just a lot happier. And so that is the state that we're looking at, is is truth different depending on who you are? Or does absolute truth exist? And this was Pilate's predicament. This is what Pilate asked. Pilate said, what is truth? What is it anyway? It doesn't really matter. There's no real right or wrong. You just decide what you believe and you live with it. And I'd say a few things to this. Firstly, I'd say that there are things in this world that you and I, whether we're Christ followers or not, know to be true. We could pretend, we could say, it's just particles colliding. There's nothing to it, 
but we know more. Things like emotion, joy, sorrow, laughter, excitement. We could say those are figments of our imagination. We can. We can say that. But I think deep down, even someone who would try to make that argument would at times say, I have been sad, I have been happy, and that can't be answered by particles colliding together. There's also a sense of right and wrong that evolutionary development cannot explain. We know murder to be wrong. Sure, there's outliers. There's definitely people who are very happy to murder in this nation and beyond. They have been, but they're the outliers. If you look at collectively across the globe, and this is a huge difference to animals, because for them it doesn't matter. Just take out whoever you want. But for us collectively at large, if I asked you guys in the room, if I was like, hey, Gray Reed or Haley, can you guys just stand up here? And I just loaded up my gun. I was like, guys, we're just gonna do a quick thing. No one's gonna matter about this. There's probably not many of you who would be like, sweet, Craig, awesome stuff. Carry on with your preach. <laughs> Majority of us would be shocked. In fact, all of us, there might be someone, maybe someone strange, an outlier who thought it was fine. But as society, there are things that we know deep down are right and wrong, and they're inherent to us. And that's why C.S. Lewis gives a great statement on our thought processes. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and so unjust. But how had I got that idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? One of the greatest opponents to the Christian faith, um, or some of the people, would be those saying that science has disproved God, that it's shown evolution to be the answer and there's nothing else. There's no truth, there's no belief, there's no emotion, there's no feeling. Well, I'd love you to listen to this comment from David Belinsky. He's one of the world's most famous and most leading physicists. I'm sure most of you would know him. <laughs> He's not a Christ follower at all. Um, in the slightest, listen to his comment very recently. It would go along the lines of Stephen Hawking's before his death. Has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark? Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. From someone who's an atheist, he's written The Devil Delusion, and he's written against Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion and Darwinian Evolution. He's someone who would say, I do not believe in Jesus at all, but one thing I can tell you is that any of the scientific belief set that tries to argue with reason for why we're here, you can't do it at all. Absolutely astounding man and one of the sharpest minds of our time. And uh, whilst he's not a Christ follower, I absolutely love his honesty. I'd love to have a conversation with him because I love his honesty with where he's at. 
Whilst he doesn't say there's a way to find truth, he's adamant that scientific thought doesn't prove it. And so this leads us onto the final one. Is truth relative? No, it isn't. There's things that are right. There are things that are wrong. Christian and non-Christian know that deep down. But which is the real truth? What is the real truth? And that leads us onto the last one. The key question of what we read is, is it Jesus or isn't it? Is it Christ or is it not? When he said in John 14 verse six, I am the way and the truth. When he said, when Pilate asked him what he was in the end crucified for, this is, I am a king and this is why I have come. Did he make it all up or is he who he said he was? I had a conversation with a friend recently whose son's at university in Australia. His son, in many respects, as a teenager, grew up in a Christian family and suddenly headed to university there. Um, and uh, suddenly you get bombarded with people who have absolutely different faith sets to you. My brother's doing his master's in Sweden, and he says that um, it, it's a society which is post-faith in that if you have conversations with people and they, that you start talking about the Christian faith, they're like, oh, um, people did believe that in the past, but not anymore. We've moved on from that. Society has moved on. And so you're starting at a, a point a long way before you used to in society. So this, um, this man's son faced the same problems or, or just, it's actually not a problem. In fact, it's a blessing because it shows you where your faith is at, makes you understand that it's real. So we should never be afraid of having those conversations. We, never, we should never be afraid of our kids having those conversations because if we've raised them to follow Christ, um, that's actually where they can have an impact for Jesus Christ. So... Um, anyway, he has lots of these conversations and lots of these struggles with people and he came back after his first year at university and just said, Dad, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm trying to work out. I don't have answers and, and, and how do I argue, guys? Do I talk about creation? Do I talk about whether you can trust in the Bible? Um, do I talk about philosophical thought? What do I do? And his dad was asking me these questions and I just said to him, actually, just go straight for the jugular, which is, is Jesus who he said he is? Because if he is, you believe everything. If he isn't, you throw it out and it's garbage. But just go straight for the jugular, which is, was Jesus who he said he was? And if he was, you just take it all. Because everything else is truth, what he said, if, if it comes down to what he said. Okay, so uh, we, we close off with this, which I'm, I'm very excited about. And we're going to cover an upcoming sermon. We're going to go deeper into the biblical text and why we can trust it and how we can trust it. But one thing I do want to say up front is that if you were to throw out the biblical text, what we're reading today, um, which has obviously been written and copied from manuscripts, you need to throw out all of ancient history. You have to. There is no way that you can ignore the biblical text and accept ancient history because the biblical text is actually used by historians, Christian and non-Christian, a lot of the time as their baseline of what happened in history. And so even historians would say, you have to use the biblical text. They would say that. Um, and ancient history would fall um, or would fail to exist if we don't use the Bible. So we're going to cover that more in depth. It's going to be a very exciting preach, but I want you to be confident in that to start. So let's look briefly at the close claims of Christ. And just as our framework, I'll read out a C.S. Lewis quote, which is one of my favorites. Uh, you'll notice that we've been sharing on him quite a lot. Uh, there's many different writers, but if you can get your hands on some of his books, Mere Christianity, uh, The Screwtape Letters, uh, The Great Divorce, there's so many of them. Uh, brilliant books to read, an amazing mind who uh, was a lecturer. He was based in top universities um, and just someone great to read from. This is what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that many people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher at all. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. And so what he sums up in that, three very simple things which you probably heard of, is was he Lord? Was he a lunatic? Or was he just a liar? And there's no other options. Jesus doesn't leave a great moral teacher. And many would say, from different faiths or those who don't believe in Christ as their Lord, they would say his teachings are some of the purest teachings that society has ever seen. In fact, many governments and many institutions base how we should live our lives on his Sermon on the Mount and what comes out of that. So people would look at it and say, that is the purest teaching. He is a brilliant moral teacher. The interesting thing is, is what he said, if he wasn't God, leaves no room for him to be a good man at all. And we need to be honest about that. So many would say that, but if you analyze what he said about himself and his claims, if they were not true, he could not be a moral teacher. In fact, it would be similar to me standing up and saying, listen guys, I can run the 100 meters in five seconds. And before you guys laugh, I probably could. Usain Bolt is pretty slow. And um, because again, humility is an important aspect of the Christian faith. I wouldn't want to show you guys up or Usain Bolt, so I've chosen not to do it. But Sarah knows the truth. Ask her. She's timed it in the garden. It's probably more like 30 meters. But <laughs> Anyway, if I stood up there and said I could do it in five seconds, you would just be like, what an idiot. This guy has lost his mind or he's just an absolute idiot. Now the claims Jesus made were similar to that if he wasn't God. You would have looked on and been like, the things this guy is saying are absolutely off the wall. He would not be a great moral person at all. So maybe, cancel that one out, maybe he was just absolutely plain mad, loony in the head. Well, his teachings are considered today to be, as I said earlier, some of the purest and clearest teachings for all society. He had thousands of followers. He could speak coherently to the wisest minds of his day and leave them dumbfounded. Now, I think we can all agree he was no lunatic, and I think that one gets dismissed pretty quickly. But maybe a liar, someone who knowingly deceived us and all his followers, we know people all the time who lie to get personal gain. I think that's fairly standard. We see that in this nation. We see it beyond people lying and lies coming out of their mouths for personal gain. Well, he didn't really gain anything. Whilst he lived on earth, he may have had some followers, but he definitely didn't gain wealth. And uh, what he suffered as a result of a lie was horrific, and so did his other followers, who even after he died, if it was for a lie, continued to suffer as a result. And people to this day suffer horrifically as a result. I don't think someone would lie to not really gain anything at all, which would be the case for him. So maybe you admit that he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic, but you're struggling to get to grips with him being the truth. Maybe that's your struggle today. The God who stepped into our world to save us, to bring us into a relationship with God, the one who, will give an, who we will give an account to for our lives. And this is the final leg a real key to his truth claim, and I'd love you to research this further if you struggle with it, there's some amazing resources, is did he actually rise from the dead? Did he really rise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, if he actually did, if the resurrection is real, 
then we take everything he says. And Paul says, in Corinthians, he says, if he didn't rise from the dead, we are the most pitied of all people. He says that Christians are the most pitied of all people on the earth if he did not rise from the dead. And so as I said, this is the key. There's amazing resources. Lee Strobel, he was an atheist. Uh, he's written The Case for Christ. Dr. Lean, Gre- uh, Do- Dr. Lean Grief. <laughs> Dr. Greenleaf. <laughs> Dr. Greenleaf. Check him out, one of uh, the, the wisest of our day. But I'm gonna close off with one quote from a man named Sir, Sir Lionel Lucku. I covered this with our life group a few weeks ago. He lived from 1914 to 1997. He's considered to be one of the greatest lawyers in British history, and he is in the Guinness Book of World Records as, quote, the world's most successful advocate. He had 20, 245 consecutive murder acquittals. Unheard of, no one is anywhere close to this man. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth II. And this is what he said. It's the most awesome thing. He said, I humbly add, I've spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still in active practice. Obviously not now, he's with Jesus. I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes. Great humility, eh? 245 in a row, I'd be bragging. (laughs) In jury trials, and that's what he says, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you struggle with this concept, read their stories, read the biblical text, read from non-Christians, read from Christians, read everywhere. The more that you study, the more you will see the proof of the resurrection. Go for it. In any way that you read, go for it. But I just love that end phrase. The evidence is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. So those are four chair um, chair legs. The Christian faith inviting us into a personal relationship with the living God which is different to many others. Being okay with exclusivity because we live in a society which by very nature of truth claims leads us to exclusivity. Accepting that truth is not relative, that some things are right and some things are wrong and that embracing the truth of the resurrection is the key when it comes to what we stand on in terms of is there one way to God. And I can guarantee you that those four things will give you astounding confidence as a Christ follower on what you place your faith in. And so the thing for us to grapple with, maybe you're here and you're exploring faith today and I'll pray for us in a short bit, is that part at the bottom where Jesus says, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so are you listening to his voice today? He'll close off with saying, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that route to the Father is open to each one of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the way that you are so absolutely clear. I want to thank you for the way that you make us choose. Thank you that you don't leave anything murky. Thank you that you don't leave anything open to interpretation. 
thank you that what you say, your very own words, um, what others who have experienced you in the past have said about you, and the way that we can look through these four legs of the chair, I thank you that you have left it wide open for us to make a very clear choice. I just want to give a, a brief opportunity. Maybe you've come to visit here today, or maybe you've been here for a while, and you're going, today, today, <laughs> I realize I know who he is. There's something that just happened while we were going through the sermon. There was something that happened um, uh, while we read through the Bible, and whilst I listened to these arguments, and suddenly now I know. <laughs> I came here questioning, but now I know without a shadow of a doubt, my heart's racing, my, um, I, I've never been clearer, and I just know that I need to take this step. What's the next step, Craig? Well, the next, next step is to believe. Jesus said, everyone who believes will receive eternal, will receive eternal life. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's nothing fancy that you say. There's nothing special that you do. You believe that he was who he said he was. That the way to the Father and the way to relationship with Jesus is through no one else. And if you're sitting going, but actually, I, I don't want to wait. I want to make this decision right now. I'd love you to pop up your hand. No one's looking around. Everyone's heads bowed. I'd love you to pop up your hand and say, that's me. I want it. That's me. I've been exploring. I've been searching. But now I know. And that's me. I'd love you to pop up your hand. If, um, if there's anyone here today, I'd love to give you that opportunity. I'd love you to give that opportunity. Anyone here today? saw a hand, hand pop up, any others? Any others here today? Great, let me, let me pray for us. You pray for us in this process. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the truth. And thank you that the step to committing our lives to you, the step to being changed and transformed forever, is purely to say, Lord Jesus, I believe. And to know that deep down, to know that deep down and to say, Lord Jesus, please change me. Please transform me. Person who you raised your hand and maybe someone else, you're a little bit shy, or maybe you want to come and chat to me afterwards. I want you to know that the route to know, to know God, it is narrow. It looks narrow, like the stable that we looked at at the beginning may look like it's, it's exclusive and it is. Jesus said it's me and that's it. But the minute you take that step, it opens you up to the wideness of his love, to the greatness of his purpose, to the massiveness of his joy now and forevermore. Lord Jesus, as we continue through this, this series, I ask that we would be a people, we would be a family who live this out, that we would be grounded in our faith. We would be excited to share the reality of who you are because who wouldn't we want to tell about that? I ask that we would get over our fear. I ask that we wouldn't be scared of what people would think, that actually we would start more conversations. Lord Jesus, thank you for this amazing church who's been getting out there into society. And, and I just want to say, well done. We've been getting increasingly um, amounts of tough questions, surveys back, and we've been hearing amazing stories of people asking questions, of people who've never been interested in faith at all, of married couples, of um, families, of friends, of, um, of, of people who've never been interested in suddenly just from having boldness to give out this flyer have started faith conversations. 
Well done. Well done, church family. And if you haven't got stuck into it yet, I want to challenge you. Go for it. What an opportunity for us to be a light in a world that so desperately needs to see the reality of who Jesus is. So Lord, thank you for this time together. We're excited about the next few weeks. I ask that um, this week we would hear your voice. We would we'd be patient. We would listen. We would step out in faith. And we would see you move and do powerful things amongst us. In your name we pray. Amen.